the epistle to the Hebrews, chapter 4, beginning at verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Every high priest is selected from among men and is appointed to represent them in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. No one takes this honor upon himself. He must be called by God just as Aaron was. So Christ also did not take upon himself the glory of becoming a high priest, But God said to him, You are my son. Today I have become your father. And he says in another place, You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, He offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. John's first letter. Chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, we lie, and we do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his Son, purifies us from all sin. 
If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word has no place in our lives. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is the word of the Lord. As we sit, let's pray. Lord Jesus, be present with us by your Holy Spirit. As we reflect on your death on the cross, help us to understand what you did and fill our hearts with gratitude and love. For your name's sake. Amen. Since January, on this 1115 service on the first Sunday in the month, we have been looking at the words of comfort that Archbishop Karamna placed at the heart of our service of Holy Communion. And today we reach the fourth word. It's taken from our reading of 1 John 2, uh, which Michael has just read to us, page 1225, and let me just read the verse again. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ the Righteous One. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Or you may notice that there is a a footnote and there's a slightly extended translation of that second part which reads as follows. He is the one who turns aside God's wrath, taking away our sins. Now these verses take us to the heart of the Christian message and in particular what happened in Jerusalem on Good Friday nearly 2,000 years ago, and will be solemnly celebrated by Christians across the globe this Friday. I suspect that the verb to atone and the noun atonement don't constitute part of our regular vocabulary. We may, however, have Jewish friends who celebrate annually Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And more on that a bit later. In 2002, Ian McEwan gave the title Atonement to his best-selling novel, which was subsequently made into a film. It is odd that a writer who is a profound and professed atheist should use such a theological word as the title of his book. The story concerns a young girl, Bryony, who partially observes 
who partially, who partially observes two incidents of adult sexual behavior. And on the basis of her partial knowledge, derives completely the wrong conclusion about what has happened. The results are devastating. Her sister's boyfriend is sent to prison for rape on Bryony's false evidence. And the sister is completely estranged from her family. On release from prison, the boyfriend is conscripted into the army for the Second World War, is sent to France, and dies on the beach at Dunkirk. The sister is killed in an air raid in London. Bryony is consumed with guilt for the wrong she had done to the couple. So she writes an account of what has happened with a happy ending. The lovers are alive and reunited. She confesses to them and takes steps legally to withdraw her evidence. If only it were so easy. In an interview in the New York Times, McEwen explains as follows. Atheists have conscience, and they still have the problem of how to reconcile themselves to a bad deed in the past. And the difficulty of doing that is what the novel is about. But in his interview, McEwen intriguingly adds, it's a little easier if you have a God to forgive you. Atheist though he is, McEwen acknowledges that true atonement involves not just your fellow human beings, but God himself. And it is that idea that we will explore in this sermon this morning. We will look first at the need for atonement and then the basis for atonement. The need for atonement arises from the fact of sin and the consequences of sin. First, the fact of sin. In verse 1, John wrote, But if anybody does sin, and that might suggest that we can live a life without sin. But the verses 8 and 10 of the previous chapter dispel that impression. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we claim we have not sinned, we make Jesus out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. It's evident that sin is endemic. Any claim to be sinless is either self-deception or failure to understand the breadth and depth of God's moral requirements. And what is sin? At root, it is an attitude of mind. The attitude which declares our freedom and autonomy to shape our lives without reference to God, to take our chances in life, and to set our own moral standards as we wish. But in these verses, I think the main emphasis is on actual conduct or behavior. And here, the menu of possibilities is as diverse as the human race itself. This is not a sermon on sin, so let me leave you to ponder Jesus' words in Mark 7, 21 to 23. 
from within, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and make a person unclean. If the cap fits, wear it. Second, if these are the sins, what are the consequences? That many of them impinge directly or indirectly on other people, family, friends, colleagues, neighbors, is not in doubt. We don't actually need a novelist to tell us that. But what of me and McEwen's hint that maybe God is also involved? Our passage in the fuller reading of the Greek refers to God's wrath. And immediately, our hackles are raised. Surely an angry God is incompatible with the God of love whom Christians proclaim. To which we might respond both no and yes. Let's deal with the no now and return to the yes later. God's wrath is is almost a technical term. It describes God's implacable hostility to human sin. An analogy, though imperfect, may help here. The Ebola virus is probably the most deadly virus known to the medical profession. In outbreaks in West Africa, it has resulted in the deaths of virtually all who contracted it. There is nothing the medical profession can do. Caring for its victims, doctors and nurses have to wear full protective clothing. And everything that comes into contact with the sick must be destroyed by incineration. To prevent the spread of the virus, the medical staff have to exercise implacable hostility towards it. That is, their wrath. So why does God exhibit wrath towards sin? Because it destroys our humanity and it results in our eternal separation from God. The implication is that sin must be dealt with. Where the analogy with the virus breaks down is, of course, that sin is a moral failing, not a medical disorder. And to put sin right requires a penalty to be paid, a remedy to be found. And that is what atonement is all about. And so let's go now to the basis for atonement. Our word of comfort identifies the remedy as Jesus Christ the righteous one who is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Let's see what light can be shed on how this works. First note that the aged Apostle John addresses the recipients of the letter as my dear children, those who had come to faith through his teaching and whom he had nurtured as Christians. 
Like us, they continued in sin and needed a remedy. But probably unlike us, they knew their Old Testament well. They knew about the Jewish ritual of the Day of Atonement. Indeed, some of them may have witnessed the ritual in the temple at Jerusalem before it was sacked by the Romans in AD 70. The details are given in Leviticus 16. Once a year, the Jewish high priest sacrificed a goat to atone for the sins of God's people, taking the blood of the sacrifice into the inner sanctuary, the Holy of Holies, into the very presence of God himself, and thereby turning aside God's wrath from his sinful people. But that was not all. The high priest also laid his hands on the head of a second goat, confessing the sins of the people. And that goat was then released to go free in the wilderness. Symbolically, their guilt was taken away. Now, the imagery of this ritual is both powerful and awesome, even if we are unable to grasp fully its depth of meaning. But for Christians today, as for the recipients of John's letter, all that ritual is a thing of the past. So what is our remedy for sin? The answer is our day of atonement, Good Friday. Jesus on the cross is our atoning sacrifice who turns away God's wrath. But more than that, Jesus is also our high priest, as explained in our reading from Hebrews and as implied in our word of comfort. We have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. He enters God's presence and presents his own sacrifice as the basis on which God's wrath can be averted and our sins taken away. Our moral guilt is properly addressed so that we can be completely forgiven. So how is all this compatible with God's love? Because it was his love for humankind which motivated him to provide a remedy for sin when there was nothing we could do for ourselves. Again, the analogy is imperfect. But God is something like the doctor who risks and finally gives her life by direct involvement in practical measures prevent a deadly virus from spreading. God gives himself in the form of his son. Let me remind you of another of these words of comfort from John 3:16. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. It is the fact of God's gracious remedy for sin which enables us to go forward into Holy Communion 
in the secure knowledge that our sins are forgiven and our guilt removed. It also gives us a confident hope for young Theo that his life need not be disfigured by sin and hindered by guilt because Christ died for him too. Let's pray. O God, who did send your Son to redeem mankind by his obedience unto death, give us grace to remember his sacrifice for us, that we may take up our cross and follow him, dying daily unto sin and living lives that are righteous before him. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.